Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 37. We are now on to part two of my conversation with Andrew Noakes, the chairman of the Guild of Motoring Writers. We are going to leap straight back into the chat and we're about to start talking about his car history. I think this would be a good time to go back again. But this time to go through your car history, <laughs> right? And I'd would like to uh, uh, I'd like to get an idea. When did you pass your test? Uh, I was seventeen. Okay, seventeen in two days, um, or was no, it a it was bit longer months, than that? Okay. And what was the first car you drove after you passed your test? Um, you well, the first the first car I drove uh, the first car I drove, and the first car I drove after the. I passed my test it was the same one, which was uh, my dad's uh, Vauxhall Cavalier, Mark II Cavalier, BUE mm-hmm. 825Y, um, <laughs> 1.6L Cavalier, um, which was uh, which which wasn't bad actually. Uh, they had a, a good engine in them those those cars, um, and in fact my um, the, the first car I owned um, was a similar sort of era, um, also Vauxhall, um, which was a, uh, a Nova SR, 1.3 SR, C- C281 Ooh. ULU. I don't know all the registration numbers of all my cars, but I know some <laughs> of them. <clears throat> um, and how did that go for the <laughs> go as your first car? Was it uh, abused or... Were you a very caring um, not, not owner? really it was um i wouldn't say it was abused it was used um a lot uh i must have done seventy thousand miles in that car um and um so it did the hard yards for yeah. you really learning to drive on the roads yes, it did yes. you, you you pass your test and then you learn to drive on the roads yeah, well, uh, of course you do yes you learn far more after you've passed the test than, than you do um, leading up to it, um, so yeah, that was that was the one that sort of um, sort of helped me through all of that. And it was a good a good car, you know. It was it wasn't a battered, beaten up old thing. It was a pretty decent second hand car. It was four years old, I think, when I bought it. Um, uh, and I was I was fortunate enough to be able to to put together the money to to do that. Um, and and I mm. kept it a long time. I must have kept it ten years. And had other things as well, but I, I, it didn't dis- finally disappear for for probably ten years. Oh right, okay. Um, and ended up actually that ended up it became a a cover feature car for Fast Car magazine. Um, <laughs> originally it was it was red. If you remember the, the Nova SRs, they were it, it was Car Carmine red, I think it was, and the bottom half of those cars was sort of foil wrapped almost. It was a sort of anthracite color, um, and it became all. Uh, sort of greeny blue color with with yellow stripes and things on it and i think it was december 95 fast car magazine cover feature so so it had a sort of second <laughs> life to it um after that um what did i have after that i had a i had an alpha 33 green clover leaf uh Ooh. which was uh nice um, although it was it was cheap, it was supposed to be a sort of stopgap, so it was only it was kind of eight hundred quid or something. Um, so I was only supposed to have it temporarily, and I actually had it more temporarily than I expected because I uh, <laughs> I rolled it into a ball of scrap um, 
on the way home from from work one evening, um, which uh, which was a shame. Um, but it's um, uh, entirely. I mean, it's my fault. I was going too fast. Um, but uh, it's just one of those things. No, no serious injury. <laughs> Not at all. No, um, only only some pride and wallet. Um, but. Well, but, yes. but no, other, no other injuries. No, it was a shame. I, I did wonder. At I remember thinking as it was as it was sort of halfway over. I remember thinking. I remember thinking two things. The first thing I thought was, "You're not going to get away with this, are you?" And and this <laughs> and the second one was as it was going over. I thought, "Well, you know, it might all be okay." And then um, <clears throat> and then it uh, the uh, a pillar on the passenger side hit. You know, we're upside down at this point. Landed on a, a rock or something, and it just bent the A pillar, kind of ninety degrees, and and the windscreen smashed and fell out at that point. You know, and at that point, I thought, no, mm. actually, this is <laughs> this isn't good. So this won't just buff this out. Isn't, no, no, you're not going to polish <laughs> out this. So, uh, so yes, that was that was the end of that one, really. Um, and then, and after that, I had uh, all sorts of things: two hundred five GTI, um, one point six, which is um is i reckon is the one to have actually um okay. which a lot of people don't agree with but they're all wrong um <laughs> <laughs> what else did i have i had when, when i worked on on classics um i then had uh I, because i was then an editor i was eligible for a company car um Ooh. and the first company car i had was also a Vauxhall. actually it was uh it was a hand-me-down from somebody else um and it was I think the most worn out car I've ever driven. Um, it was, a, it was an Astra, an Astra GTE 1.8 Mark II, the, the slippery shape one. Um, so it should have been a good car, but it had done about 270,000 miles. Um, uh, literally hard miles, hard, probably hard miles. Yeah. It was, uh, a bit the worse for wear. And the, the worst thing about it was it had got ABS. I think it was probably the first car I'd ever driven with, with anti-lock brakes. Um, and you've got ABS and um, worn-out dampers. And so if you hit the brakes hard over a bumpy surface, the wheels would just bounce up in the air. And as soon as the wheels were off the ground, the ABS would cut in. And so you you wouldn't you had no braking at all. So so not only was the, were the wheels all bouncing around in, in the air, but you weren't slowing down. So it was you had to be very careful about how you applied the brakes in, in that car. Um, <laughs> a, bit, uh, a bit disconcerting. Um, but then, um, I, uh, I, I could have a, that was again, just a stopgap. And, and then after that, I could have a, a classic company car. Um, and so the first one I had was, uh, a Rover 3500 P6, uh, okay. URV 692K, um, and, uh, which, uh, popped up actually, it popped up on Facebook earlier in the year, um, that somebody just bought this car and, um, uh, you know, it was, and there it was, it was, it was the one that I used to have all those years ago. Um, and it had a set of, and it's still got them. It's got a set of, uh, uh, GB alloy wheels, a bit like mini lights, um, which, uh, made it look quite distinctive. So, uh, that was a really nice mm. car that I really enjoyed having that. Um, and then after that I had, um, my first BMW, which was a BMW. It was, a an E12, uh, M535i, Ooh. which is uh, which are very rare uh, right-hand drive ones. I think I, I can't remember the numbers, but I, it was only a few hundred, if that, that they 
they made in right hand drive for the UK. Um, and now there might be a couple of dozen left or something. Um, so very rare cars. Um, great fun to drive. You could drive it sideways all day long. Um, hilarious thing. So, so I really enjoyed that. <laughs> um, and then when I uh, went freelance and I had to give the company car back, um, I, uh, I had a car of my my own, um, which was the first one was a an Alpha One Six Four Three Liter, which was also good fun. And was was that uh, reliable? It was. Or were you hit by gremlins. It was reliable right up to the point that the rear suspension fell off. Okay. Um, so, or, uh, in fact, oh, right. to, that's, that's to be, to be fair, it was the suspension was fine. It was the body that fell off. Really, um, it was the, <laughs> the, the the back end of it just sort of unzipped itself because of corrosion. Um, so the rear suspension part of company with the shell. Uh, so that was the end of that one. Um, but it was uh, it was nice while it lasted. So I haven't mm. had, a, had a massively good run with Alphas, although they've been nice while they were. And, and to be to be fair, I couldn't blame the car for the first one. Perhaps good for the second one. Um, but um, <laughs> well, that that doesn't come across as the typical freelance vehicle either. Three liter. <laughs> no, possibly um, not. You know, there I was expecting you then to go. Well, because of, I'm doing all these miles and it's my own money now, yeah. I will have very sensible diesel. Life's too short. <laughs> very. Life's too short for driving around in boring cars. That's good to no, hear. I, I mean, I mean, my current. Um, I, I've got a a, a long termer at the moment, which is a um, a Kia Sportage, which is a two liter mm-hmm. diesel. Um, uh, and is and he's very impressive um but my my own kind of everyday car um is uh is not dull um because i don't have dull cars um and that's a uh, uh, another bmw an e46 m3 okay. um, which i've had about four years now um and that's um it's a great car actually it's i mean people say well yeah, you know, fabulous things and and they really are um, I think they're just a, on the cusp of where th- very often things started to go wrong with modern cars. Um, I think it's it's in, an interesting car because it's modern enough to have um, a lot of the things that you might want in a in a car. You know, it's got um, you know electronic engine management and it's got abs and it's got some trick chassis stuff on it and it's got um airbags and all of these kinds of things um uh, and also mine's got the smg gearbox so it's got a you know paddle shift gearbox um but mm-hmm. it's it's not so technically um kind of sophisticated and and so um uh, kind of turned into something that you you can't work on so you can do things you can do jobs on itself um it, it kind of still makes sense and it's it's also got a there's a lot of sort of feel to it and there's a lot of character to it that you have to interact with uh, as a driver i think you have to learn to car you have to learn to drive whereas i think too mm-hmm. many cars these days are designed in such a way that you don't have to learn to drive them and you you don't yeah. really get if you put the effort in to, to drive it in a particular way you don't really get anything out of it whereas i think with that car and cars of that kind of era if you learn to drive it properly then you get a reward from doing that and i like cars that are like that where you have to work with the machinery to to get the best result 
Um, so it's uh, so yeah, it's a it's a lot of fun that. That's a pretty decent list you've you've had there. <laughs> I haven't even talked about uh, the MG Midget yet. <laughs> you've got MG Midget. I've, I've got a midget which, um, unfortunately, it's it's sat around doing nothing for for quite a while. Um, but for a while, that was my everyday car, and um, and I did some. Uh, I then did some sprints um, in it uh, a few years ago as well. So I sort of started to develop it for for sprinting. So it's got a roll cage in it and stuff like that, um, which was which was good fun. <laughs> Excellent. Moving away from the cars now, when did you get or become a member of the Guild of Motion Writers, um, and why did you do that? Uh, I became. I, I mean, I'd been aware of the Guild all through my career you know i knew it existed and i suppose i would have joined about 1999 so i suppose i'd been working in the industry for four or five years um Mm -hmm. and um it was I, i i there was something we had to look up some fact that we had to find uh, and this was before the days where you just Google it and you'd know in 10 seconds. Um, and it was something like who won the Le Mans 24 hours in 1976 or something like that. Um, and I was discussing this with, with a a guy, a freelance that we used to use on, on Classic. And he said, oh, it will be in the back of the Guild book. And I said, well, that's great, but I'm not a member of the Guild. So I haven't got a Guild book. So that's no help at all. And And about two <laughs> days later, I got a membership application form from the Guild. The secretary of the guild sort of says, Tim Tim Whittington, who's the guy that I'd been talking to, um, said you might be interested in this, and he'd sent me an application form, and I thought, oh well, I, I ought to take this seriously, you know, and, and so I read it through and and looked at it, and it's the first time I'd really sort of looked at what the guild did and um, uh, and whether it would be something that was was worth doing, um, and uh, and so I signed up and have been a member ever since. So for for anyone listening who doesn't know. What does the guild do? do? Uh, well, the, the guild, the guild of emerging writers, is um, the world's largest organisation of uh, not just motoring writers, not just automotive journalists, but anybody um, who works in the sort of motoring automotive editorial field. So it could also include um, not just writers, but also broadcasters. Uh, photographers, um, people who work in editorial design in magazines, for example, uh, editors, publishers. Mm-hmm. So anybody who works on that sort of editorial side of um, uh, automotive media. Um, and it's there to provide connections between those people. So we, we as the Guild run, um, run social events. We run sort of things that uh, allow a bit of networking and help you to sort of to to meet people and make connections, um, which, as we were discussing before, is something that's quite important. Mm-hmm. It also acts as a link between the journalists and the writers and uh, the motor industry. So we have links with a, an organisation called MIPA, the Motor Industry Public Affairs Association, um, and. Um, uh, and very often, see, one of the things uh, that sort of people don't really see that the Guild does, I think, is um, if the motor industry uh, press officers want to do something or feel that as a as a group they should have a certain policy about something, 
the way they very often decide that or get information about what they should do is they consult with MIPA and the Guild. So mm. even if you're not a Guild member as a motoring writer, you're kind of, the, the, the Guild acts as the body which is... Um, the, the spokesman if you like it's it's the the body which is representing the motoring writers kind of whether they're they're members mm -hmm. or not um so so the guild acts as this as this mouthpiece for for motoring writers um we also have a uh a fairly uh substantial set of awards which we organize every yes. year um so the guild awards are uh, start in sort of august september time and uh, are awarded in um, December at the uh, annual dinner, um, which is at the Royal Automobile Club in Pall Mall. Um, so that's a, quite an interesting event. Um, and and there are you know there are awards for all sorts of different areas of of motoring, um, motoring writing, motoring content uh, to reward the sort of the best uh, output from the year. And there are all sorts of other things. There are training courses that that we offer. The Guild has a benevolent funds so if people are you know if you're a freelance and you're off sick for a long period or something like that if you've got some sort of problem then then the, the guild benevolent fund can help out with things like that so there's there's all sorts of ways in which the guild supports the work of um motoring writers and other people involved in in the industry and that's what it's there for really mm -hmm. so what are the challenges at the moment for the guild with the um Digital is such a, a massive thing mm. now. And the name of the guild doesn't actually cover what you your reach. I mean, you've explained it now, so that's that was uh, helpful. But I, I I knew that the it was not just writers, you know. It was that sometimes the name does you a little bit of a hindrance. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's very difficult to come up with a, a, an alternative that isn't kind of 15 words long that, sort of encapsulates everything that we that we do so we've kind of sort of said well you know we're stuck with it now we'll we'll, we'll leave it as it is yeah no i i, I think that's sensible because i think if if people investigate they they do understand yeah. um but it's just people looking from the outside so what are the challenges for the guild at the moment well i, I think the biggest thing that we have to look at at the moment and and something that we we constantly sort of discuss is how we define what a guild member could or should be and i mm -hmm. think the tricky bit is to um to allow um or enable entry to the guild to, for people who are working in in all sorts of valid um areas of motoring media which didn't exist five, ten years ago, certainly didn't exist when the Guild was set up 70 years yeah. ago. Um, and yet at the same time, and so what we want to do is, is, you know, all of those people who work in these kind of emerging areas, yes, they should be Guild members or, or they should be, you know, um, if they wish to be, they should be accommodated within the Guild. But also at the same point, you have to somehow um, say those people who are working in those areas find they're they're eligible but also there are people who um who aren't and shouldn't be 
eligible to be guild members because guild members should be mm. professionals who are working in these areas. Um, so you you kind of it's difficult to draw a line between somebody who kind of sets up a WordPress blog and writes an article about cars and then says, right, I'm now I'm a motoring writer, therefore I should be a member of the guild. And you sort of say, well, no, hang on mm. a minute. You, 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 there needs to be a bit needs to be a bit more substantial your expertise than that before we will let you in. So, um, but you kind of but you can't then say, well, we're not going to allow bloggers in because there are some really big, really successful blogs um, uh, yep. doing some really good work. Why on earth would we not want those people in the guild? Of course we do. So, so it's quite difficult to navigate between those two extremes and say well exactly where should we draw the line and how do we define where that line is drawn and that's something that we i mean i've been on the guild committee for about five years now and it's something that we we've discussed numerous times and i'm sure we'll carry on discussing over the over the years and we've it must also be tricky for older members who've been there a long time as well who've who've you know they've they've done the hard yards to get where they are Mm. now you know they've put some serious effort in, and then for someone, as you say, someone just starts up a a dot wordpress dot com site, and then chucks out three or four articles where they go, "I saw this Ferrari on the street; it was ace. Can I be a member?" You know, it, it's hard to reconcile that with you know the the effort that's gone through to those points, and I, and I think you know it, it's quite right that someone who does that and has uh, and then comes along and says, "Please, I want to be a." Uh, a member shouldn't shouldn't be part of your uh, shouldn't be part of the guild at that stage because they need to appreciate what the guild stands for yeah absolutely in 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 the same way that you know if somebody was a 20 years ago was a cub reporter on a local newspaper um and wrote a story about the motor industry and then said right i'd like to be a member of the guild again the answer would be well actually no you need to have a bit more experience you know and we expect guild members to have at least a year's experience working in in motoring media so so i think you've you've got to you've got to have a line you've got to have a um a, a kind of a, a a minimum standard and a minimum level of experience um a, a, which you've got to achieve before it's right that you should be a guild member um I think it's just always difficult to know exactly where that line should be and to make sure that it's mm. it, it's obvious and open and transparent about where that line is. I think it's it's quite difficult to define that because the trouble is that when you when you sort of write the words to define what a, a guild member should be, it's quite difficult to accidentally exclude people where if you look at an individual case you think oh well yes this person of course they should should be and then you look at the rules and you say well actually under our rules they don't act you know, technically, they don't qualify, so it's quite difficult mm. to get the the niceties of all of those uh, of those rules correct. So it's something we keep on looking at, and we keep on updating as well because things change, you know, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. The the landscape is it's constantly changing. Definitely with the with the with the digital side of things, it is changing, and um, you look at uh, the way that manufacturers are trying to interact with a wider audience and the type of people they are approaching now, um, those those sort of people 
may suddenly turn around and go, oh, well, hang on, I'm, I'm doing stuff with cars. And then you just go, well, yeah, hang on, but. Um, so, but, I, but I think that part of your system where you have uh, a nominee uh, and a seconder helps with that, I, th- I think. Yeah, really. absolutely, because, I mean, you, you might sort of say, well, I, I, you know, I don't know anybody in the Guild, but, um, but actually, I mean, your, your nominee and your seconder don't have to be Guild members. What they have to be are senior um, media people who can vouch for your work and uh, and the fact that you're you're bona fide and that you're uh, someone who's who should be a, a a guild member. So whoever you are, whatever kind of area of the media you're working in, whether you're a blogger or a YouTuber or you know a vlogger or a, or whatever, or you're working on a magazine, you're going to know people who are senior figures if you're any good you're going to know people who are senior figures who <laughs> yes. who can vouch for you you know because you're going to have made yeah. relationships with people and if you haven't done that then you probably aren't at the level where you really should be a should be a guild member although it's worth pointing out mm. we have two different categories of membership so we have a full we have full membership um which is for people who are spend basically most of their time working um, as um, motoring writers or other, you know, editorial people, um, and mm-hmm. um, and have been doing that for a year or more. Um, we also have an, an associate membership category, um, where the the kind of the barrier to entry is all, a lot lower. Um, so there is an opportunity there for people who who maybe are part time, so they don't work in motoring media all the time, but they do have a role which includes, you know, doing road tests or whatever. Um, and so there's an opportunity there for those people to to get involved with the guild, and um, and they don't quite get the same sort of benefits that a full member gets, but then they they don't pay the same fee. So there's the opportunities. Yeah, you said there that you that the committee is always looking uh, at at changing, tweaking. I don't want to say improving because that's not necessarily the right word because it implies that it's not correct to start off with. But uh, developing the guild, uh, do you have or is there anything that you can discuss um more importantly the uh, sort of directions you're you're all considering and looking at and looking to develop the guild into that's a difficult question to answer um it's a difficult question to answer because there are always so many things that we can do and that's one of the reasons why um the guild isn't run by a chairman the guild is run by a committee because there's an awful lot of stuff to do mm. you know one of the things that we we want to be doing and it's something i'm personally kind of am involved in is developing training courses for for guild members and for others on things like i mean we've done them in the past on things like um indesign you know i talked about indesign earlier yeah um and that's something that um we've identified is a a skill that um very often a journalist didn't need to know 10 years ago but sometimes now they they do or they think if i did know that that might be might be useful so it's something that that we have run training courses on in the past and we want to do that again um we've also just done one um on um photography aimed at not at photographers but at journalists who have to kind of snap the odd picture while they're on a Mm. uh, on a launch or or something um so that they can get kind of better results from from what they do so that's one kind of area where we want to be able to help guild members to develop skills that that they sort of see that they might need. Th- yeah. That really there's probably very 
little or, or perhaps less opportunity than there used to be for them to be able to learn those those skills any other way. So um, so that's that's kind of one area. But there's there's lots of things really. I mean, there's always more opportunity to to put together events that bring guild members together. There's always opportunities to to think about you know the awards that we produce and whether they those are the right ones and and exactly how we how we do that. We're always looking for ways that we can provide other benefits to guild members so there's lots of activity going on all the time really i want to move on to one of the other things right. you do. <laughs> one, one i have several hats. You do. <laughs> yes quite i i, I realized that when i did do uh, a bit of research and i know that may shock the listeners but i do do some research uh, but <laughs> that um you're involved at the uh, auto journalism degree or degrees at coventry uni and you're the, is this correct, the director of the Masters? I am the course director for the Auto Journalism Masters course at Coventry University. That's right. Could you explain to the ignorant of us, hello, I'm here, um, <laughs> uh, what, that, what that actually means? Uh, well, what it means is that Coventry University is the only place in the world, as far as I'm aware, um, which offers a master's degree in automotive journalism. It was started in, I think, 2004. Now, I wasn't involved at that point, but it was started in 2004. And it was really, the idea came from Steve Cropley, who's editor-in-chief of Autocar. Um, mm-hmm. And Steve thought that there ought to be a way of doing a, a kind of formal training to become a motoring writer in the in the way that there is for most other things. So if you want to be a, an automotive designer, for example, yeah. you can do a degree in automotive design and become a designer. If you want to be an engineer, you do a degree in automotive engineering, you become an engineer. If you want to be a motoring writer, there wasn't really anything there that allowed you to do that. And most people who came into automotive journalism did it by doing something else and then changing direction or or they kind of fell into it or they they did a some sort of training in journalism and then specialized or whatever but there wasn't a a kind of specific formal route and steve felt there should be and so he already had um a relationship with the automotive design courses at coventry um which which are you know pretty well regarded courses um Mm. And so uh, because he had that relationship, he came to Coventry and he said, well, why don't you do this automotive journalism course? And and they set it up. Um, and that started in 2004. Um, I came along in 2006 and I've been there ever since. So I, uh, so I spend, I mean, I said earlier on, I've, I've been freelance since 2002. To, to be really accurate, since 2006, I've been half freelance. Um, so I spend <laughs> half of my time freelancing and half of my time on I'm working at Coventry with uh, with the automotive journalism students. What would they typically be doing on the course? What's what's the what are the sort of things they need to go through for their for their masters? Well, it, it's a combination of two things really. One is uh, journalism skills. So the the assumption is um, that the people who come on the course don't know anything about journalism. Okay. Um, sometimes they do. Some people come to the the masters course with uh, I mean, occasionally people come in having done a degree in journalism. Um, well, that's rare. Um, sometimes they do media studies or some other media media kind of degree. Um, but um, but they we we get people from several you know lots of different backgrounds. 
Um, so the assumption is that you come in knowing nothing about journalism except as as a consumer of it. Um, so the first part um, or, or the first sort of strand of things that they they learn is about the basics of of journalism and how that works, about how to write news stories, how to write features, how to do interviews. And do you do that on a practical level as well as? Oh yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the theories that they they are thrown out and said, right, go off and. Yeah, it's it's all a combination of <laughs> of theory and practice. So okay. so we look at, you know, I mean, for example, you can look at one of the sort of basic theories of how news works, which is called news values. And, you, and, and that sort of tells you or allows you to, to analyze how important a news story is and, and whether it's a story. So um, so we look at them, stuff like that. But then actually they go out and they produce they produce stories. They uh, they go out and uh, they find people to talk to or they find things that are worth worth reporting on and they write stories about it. Because it comes it seems to me that with journalism, that's one of those disciplines that you need to do a lot of mm. to, to, yeah. to, to improve at it. You really need to to do it and then do it again and do it again and do it again and listen to the feedback and listen to where people are saying we need this change that I had to change this and this to make it work as a as a story or to fit in the paper or however it is. It just seems that there's one of those disciplines you really have to do a lot to to get ingrained with it and understand it. I think that's true of all kinds of writing, actually. That, that I forget who it was that said it, but somebody says writing is that you write with a muscle and you have to exercise that muscle and the more you do of it the better you get at it and if you stop mm. you you regress you know so you have to keep on doing it and keep on using that that ability and keep on you know keep it up to date um, and I think that's absolutely true and so we get students writing stuff kind of from week one and they write all the way through the course uh, not necessarily actually everything that they do will be about cars although the vast majority of it tends to be mm. because obviously the people that come on the course are and generally are massive petrol heads and so they, they <laughs> all they really want to write about is cars which is fine you know i mean that's that's the name of the game so so that's that's absolutely fine so so they yes they go off and find find interesting stories and, and write about them and and then alongside that you've got i suppose two other sets of things that they do in addition to the writing there's also learning about all of the other sort of aspects of um, journalism and and modern media work so they, they learn more about social media they learn about a bit about photography and a bit about video recording and editing audio recording and editing mm -hmm. they learn how to make podcasts so you might have some competition yeah. in the future um, oh, good uh, the more the more motoring podcasts out there the better <laughs> so there's so there's all of that so there's all of those sort of those technical skills alongside it so there's the, the sort of the content creation you know the writing and and all of that then there's the technical skills that go alongside that. And also one of those is uh, magazine page layout, which is one of the things I do. Mm -hmm. And then alongside all of that is the sort of the more specialized stuff, looking at the specifics of what a, an automotive journalist does as opposed to a, a normal journalist. So looking at things like road testing and things like um, car photo shoots, which are quite a specific sort of thing. And then also studying cars and the motor industry and, and how all that works because um, what we yeah. tend to find is that although the students that come in are massive petrol heads, they tend to have a sort of patchy knowledge. So they'll know, you know, they'll be able to tell you, they'll be able to re re recite all the part numbers in a LaFerrari or something. <laughs> 
but they won't necessarily know anything about you know the design process that takes a car from a clean sheet of paper to uh, something rolling off the end of a production line. Another one is very often motoring history. They they know uh, bits about motoring history, but they won't know kind. They want to have a good overview of the whole thing. So we try and fill in some of those blanks. Well, that's why I uh, part of the reason I started Rearview is through getting connected to people in the tiny automotive corner of the internet. I quickly came to realise because I was just a you know an interested person on the outside, but I quickly came to realise that uh, it's it's a vast universe is the word I use a lot of the time, but it is a vast universe that covers such a wide breadth and depth of the population um, that I'm I'm trying to because a I'm nosy, but uh, <laughs> b b I'm trying to get a better grasp of it. So I'm I'm that's why I'm asking all the 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 interesting people that come on is right so. How do you fit into this, and what is this bit of it? Oh, okay. And hopefully, the people who are listening get a get a bit of an education and a bit of a better appreciation of how ingrained or how interwoven the motoring world is into you know everything. Yeah. Really, it's, you you may not appreciate um, you, you know design exactly how that is uh, is in it. You know, and I've had quite a few designers on and and things like that. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, through through nosiness and just been gobsmacked really of how how many people are, are touched by it. It, it that's what rear views about really and and it's quite important i think for a journalist to to have a a bit of an understanding of all of these areas you don't necessarily have to be a massive expert in every every area and, and really you're never going to be um mm. but i think you need to have a good overview of all of these things because otherwise it's very easy to to write about something and to to get the wrong end of the stick or to make a comment that actually doesn't make any sense to somebody who does know about that area, you know, because you don't really understand what's going on. So it's it's useful, I think, to to be able to fill in some of the blanks for 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 the students about um, about how the design process works and about some of the technology that goes into cars and how that's changed and developed over the years you know all, all, all of these kinds of things so how long does the masters last uh it's a one-year well it, the two options normally it's a one-year course um, okay so it starts in, so it's quite intensive then it, yeah, it's pretty intensive yeah um it starts in september um end of september and then it runs through to uh we kind of get to about may and then students do uh their final project and the final projects last until sort of uh, middle of August, that kind of time. Um, okay. So it is pretty much a year. It doesn't sort of, we don't have the summer off like a lot of people do. Um, it, uh, it kind of does <laughs> run near enough a year. And there is an option to do it as a part-time course for people who want to do it that way, which uh, you do half as much per week, if you like, and it takes two years. So do you enjoy seeing the change in people from when they first start to when they walk out the door with the <laughs> diploma yes i do and that's really that's one of the reasons why i do it i i actually found when i went freelance i i sort of realized that one of the things that i'd been doing when i was a magazine editor was training people we all you know we always had fairly small teams very often writers who were quite new to the business quite inexperienced and one of my jobs as as an editor leading that team was not necessarily to teach people things, but was to sort of keep them in the right direction and make suggestions about how they might go about doing things and, 
and help them to develop their own skills. And I sort of realized when I went freelance that I wasn't doing that anymore. There's now no requirement for me to do that. And I kind of missed it. Mm. And so when the opportunity came up at at Coventry, it was it was something I was very keen to do because because I realised that that's that was a, a kind of an area that, that I had enjoyed doing and wanted to to you know didn't want to let go sort of too long. And it is it, it is good to be able to help people to help the, the students to kind of focus their activities because they're they're very often in the same situation that I was when I was when I'd come out of university and was wondering how to get into this industry that they've got this passion they've got this excitement about it you know they they've got things that they want to say and they've got stuff that they want to get involved in doing and don't know how to do it and and very often it's it's just about being able to to focus them into saying well you know the areas that you need to be looking at and learning more about are these areas and these are what are going to make you successful or at least get you get your foot in the door and that's what you need in order to, you know, to get your starting point in this industry. Very interesting. That is that. Yeah, because uh, that's I often find when if you talk to people who who have had a dabble at teaching people, they suddenly go, "Oh, I like that because it's making a difference to someone." Yeah, and that's um, and that that's yeah. So that's, that that is interesting to hear. Right, I've just got a couple more questions before I run on to the quick fire ones. Okay. But this is this is more of a general a general one. Good luck with this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> there are no. Pro- I, I I have dropped for the listeners. I have dropped an awful lot of questions that Andrew was not aware I was going to ask in this way in any in any shape or form. So uh, I I am very impressed with how you've answered these, by the way. But it, but is what do you think is the current uh, challenge for? motoring journalism the current challenge for motoring journalism i would say probably the the same as the current challenge for any other sort of form of journalism which is to be heard i suppose respected considered relevant Con- do you think possibly yeah uh, i mean it, it's it's sort of this issue that says if uh, as we've said if if everybody can be a publisher if everybody's opinion is on twitter why should i listen to you as a journalist why mm. why are you important to this conversation and i think i think that is and again we were talking about other kinds of influences that aren't journalists necessarily um mm. as being people who are relevant to to car manufacturers uh, as as people they want to interact with as journalists i think you've i think it is becoming increasingly difficult for journalists to uh, have a place in this massive conversation and that's quite difficult i think there's one of the things we've got to think about is how we we journalists as a, a body can make our case as being an important source of information and i think it's partly i think that's partly because nobody in the wider you know the, the sort of consumers of media very few people really consider where the information they're getting comes from and the validity yes. of the information that, that they get you know and people sort of say oh well, we don't need journalists or no, don't trust journalists anyway and then you think well yes okay but you know you have an opinion i can talk to somebody i can walk down the street now and stop somebody in the street and say what's your opinion of donald trump and they will have an opinion mm. of donald trump and they might think he's brilliant they might think he's an idiot whatever but they will have an opinion about donald trump 
how have you got that opinion of Donald Trump? Now, it may be partly because they read what he tweets, but otherwise, their opinion of Donald Trump, unless I happen to have just randomly picked somebody who's met him, is probably because they've read or watched or seen content created by a journalist. Mm. All of the the information that we get about these people, about the events that happen in the world, are coming via journalists. Yeah. You know, a lot of that content, that's where it comes from. And people don't really see that. They sort of just see it as information. Um, and, and Do you think a lot of that is because of the channels they consume it in? Um because if you you know when when we were growing up yeah back in the day when the world was black and white and all the rest of it the <laughs> dinosaurs roamed the unit the, the land um but you had three four channels on the tv and the news was on at a certain time mm. and you were told what you were told or the newspapers with this there wasn't twitter snapchat youtube you know facebook where some you know where uh, a piece by a respected journalist will be next to someone who has no qualifications and is just venting an opinion. And there's no, through the way that uh, these social media uh, uh, timelines are constructed now, there's no differential between, except for the person. And if you're not paying attention to who the person is who's posting that, and you're just seeing information, does that, can, is that possibly a, a where... I'm not sure respect is quite the right word, but it, the, it, the... It, it almost is respect. I, I think it's it's back to this thing about anybody can be a publisher, which didn't happen pre-internet mm. era, and so there is there is far less quality control. That yeah. that you know I can go and I can tweet and I can say anything I like, and you know some of it may be true, some of it may not. Um, mm. I may know what I'm talking about. I may have not the slightest idea, but if people are interested in what I say and and think they believe it, it doesn't really matter where where the information has has come from and um, whether I'm talking sense on or not. People, you know, people take it on whatever value they they want to put on it. But what it means is that there is no no quality control process. And I think one of the things perhaps to come back to journalists, that journalists need to be doing and, and, and making a case for in the future is that is saying, look, yeah, there's all this noise around, there's all this information flying around. But if you want information which is true and which has been obtained with a, a process and which you can um, rely on, then you need to come to professionals like us. Um, because otherwise mm. you just can't trust what you're seeing. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think that's something that, that I would hope is going to be a conversation which becomes more and more relevant as time goes on and start, people start to see that. They start to see that, yes, there is all this stuff flying around, but the only bits of it that we can really trust are the bits where there is a quality control process, there is an editorial process going on. Um, mm. To know that actually this information has has been found and has been verified and there's sensible comments about it and that's yeah. going to come from from journalists or people working in a journalistic type fashion. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that develops. It will, and and I don't to to to, to make to to make the clear differential between opinion and fact. 
and it's yeah. it's how to get that yeah and and yeah. fact that has been has been found and has been verified and and you know we've asked sensible people that know about these things and we've then tried to corroborate those facts and you know all of those things which which don't happen in the wider kind of media social media world necessarily mm. um and so the, that then potentially casts doubt on the the content that is created it's it's a difficult process and i think it's i mean it's one of the things that makes it interesting i, I mean i think it's it's a fascinating time to be a motoring journalist because on the one hand there's all of these changes and all of this sort of chaotic re sort of uh, regrouping and, and changing of the media and how that works and who values what and all of that that we've just been talking about mm. all of that is changing and there's different platforms coming along and different things and and people are consuming media in different ways and mobile has come along and become suddenly become very important and that's changed the way that we do things it's changed websites and it's changed all sorts of things so all of that is changing and at the same time you look at what's happening in cars and the motor industry and that's all changing as well so you know yeah. so there's the change in in you know um, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and all of this kind of stuff all of this is changing as well so now in the next 10 20 years i think are a fascinating time to be to be a motoring journalist because the motoring bit's changing and all of that's happening and the journalism bit's changing as well. No, well, I think that's an excellent place to move on to the quickfire questions then because okay. uh, I think that was an excellent point. Um, so I will start with what I always do, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world, which you may have just answered. Um, it's kind <laughs> of, yes. Um, I, I, think, I think electric cars. I, I think a lot of people, a lot of... One of the things about enthusiasts, car enthusiasts, is they're always the last people to uh, to to accept change in cars. You know, in the, mm. in the 1920s, car enthusiasts, petrol heads, were the people who were saying, "Well, we don't want front wheel brakes on cars because they're dangerous." You know, we d we don't want automatic advance and retard on ignition systems because um, that's all part of of the expertise of driving a car. You know, these days you mm. you launch a car with manual advance and retard on the ignition people think you're mad you know quite rightly <laughs> you know so it's always it's always the enthusiasts who are the last people to to pick up on technology so people don't like automatic gearboxes now you know and they don't like electric cars and stuff hmm. um i actually look at it the other way i like electric uh, automatic gearboxes i have to say and and i think if you drive an electric car they drive in a fantastic way yeah. that a lot of people are going to like, most people are going to like, and they provide you with a bunch of advantages for, for doing things, you know, that, that you can't otherwise do. It's very easy to have four-wheel drive. You know, you get lots of torque at low speed, so they, they you know, they drive in a very effective way, they're very quiet, all sorts of things. So, so I think electric cars give you some, you know, you know some really exciting opportunities for the future. Um, and, mm. so, and so I, I, th I think they're enormously interesting, even if a lot of my petrol head colleagues and students and friends kind of think, oh, electric cars, you know, they're boring. Uh, I don't think they are at all. Go and drive a Tesla in ludicrous mode and tell me that electric cars are boring. Uh, so then what currently worries you about the motoring world? Uh, well, I suppose well, I could just say electric cars, couldn't I? <laughs> what sort of what worries me i think there's a a really interesting somewhere on the on the horizon of technology there is a really interesting area you know time that we're going to get to with 
fully autonomous cars where people no longer have to drive the car because it will drive itself. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating and, and going to be really exciting. I think the problem and the bit that worries me is the bit between now and then where we have semi-autonomous cars, which we're getting now with things like yes. sort of lane departure, control systems and all that kind of stuff, where we're going to have cars which do more and more of the job for you, but will uh, will have a limit to what they can do. Um, and so at some point they will return control to you, particularly in an emergency. So you're going to be yep. trundling along and the thing's going to be driving itself and you're not paying any attention. And suddenly, you know, the klaxon goes off and says, you need to resume control of the vehicle. And I think that is the right really, now, exactly right, right now, in the, next, <laughs> in the next 300 milliseconds or something really horrible is going to happen. And I think, you know, it, it's hard enough to get people to pay attention when they're actually driving the car all the time. Never mind yep. when they're reading the paper or something because it's driving itself. And then they need to suddenly take control very quickly and do something important to, to the way the car is is operating on the road. I, I think it's a really hard thing to to get that to work between the car and the driver. Uh, well, I've, I've, I've been very vocal about that um, and saying that the language that is being used by some manufacturers on implications of what their systems can do has led us down this route where people people who aren't in our corner of the internet so this is just general members of the public think the cars can drive themselves and they don't appreciate that it is in very controlled circumstances and it is for very short periods of time yeah and I think manuf some manufacturers need to completely change how they are putting the message across and they need to be much clearer and they need to change the words they're using to one, describe their systems, but also in the way that they are suggesting that it is or, or not making it clear that it is not capable in all situations. Mm and all circumstances no i think that i think that's very sensible um, but of, of course the problem is that you know as alec Sigonis used to say the guy designed the mini used to say that um if you give drivers safety margins they'll use them up you know yes they'll they they will always run to the edge of, of the envelope and i think if, if you give people an autonomous or semi-autonomous technology on a car they'll use it you know so if you get a thing that will steer itself on a motorway They'll they'll take their hands off the wheel and they'll sit there and and they'll read the paper or fall asleep or whatever. And I, and I think the I think the answer is that we get we we make that phase between sort of dumb vehicles of today and semi autonomous vehicles of later today tomorrow um, and fully autonomous vehicles. I think that that semi autonomous sort of developmental phase needs to be as short as possible if, yes. if we're going to go down this route at all i think we've got to get right to the end really quickly yeah it, it's almost uh cut out that middle bit cut out the man in the middle literally yeah yes yeah it's it's you can have the, the certain bits at the start don't have the bits in the middle and then come along with the here is the autonomous bit because i i think I, I agree with you i think that it's going to be very difficult for people psychologically to adjust to that yeah. um 
And as you said, it, it's tricky enough anyway. But uh, sorry, I digress. <laughs> We're supposed to be going through the quickfire questions, but <laughs> like I always they're, ruin they're this bit. I always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, what has been your favourite car to drive, and why is that? Um, Motion journalist's favourite question: What's your favourite car? Um, is it not the what's the best car ever? <laughs> uh, well, that, that as well. Well, it's the same thing, I suppose, isn't it? Um, there are too many to list. Um, in fact, if you look on my website somewhere, I've got a page of what's your favourite car answers, um, and there's, there's about <laughs> 25 of them. Um, oh, what's, what springs to mind? There, there was a, a car that I drove um, a couple of times for a couple of different features um, a few years ago in classics, um, which, which I suppose is, you know, if, if I was going to make a top 10 list, I suppose that one would be on it. And it was um, a Lotus 7, not a Caterham, a Lotus 7. Um, mm. And and just to keep up the list of registration numbers, it was NRN 7. Um, and it was it was Graham Nern's own Lotus 7. Graham Nern, the guy that founded Caterham Cars and eventually took mm. over the, the Lotus 7 production. Um it was Graham Nern's personal car, and it was a Lotus 7 Twin Cam SS. So it had a twin, uh, a Lotus Twin Cam engine tuned thing, and they only made about a dozen of that particular model. Um, and this one was, like I say, it was Graham Nern's car, and I borrowed it off Caterham for a story. Um, and and that was, I mean, all sevens are enormous fun, but that was great because it was it was enormous fun. It was very quick because it was incredibly light and had this big twin cam in it um the, the uh, sort of provenance of the car because it was graham nern's own car um and um and i also i got stopped in a i was in a, a petrol station somewhere in surrey i had to fill it up to get it to where we were going and um somebody accosted me in this petrol station and looked at the registration plate of this car and said are you a nern and i had to <laughs> i had to admit i wasn't um but, um, is this your car, sir? Is, is your, well, actually, no. Um, so, uh, so that was that was a really nice a nice example of of those cars. Last time I saw that car, it was in the British Motor Museum in in Gaydon. It's a white one. So, uh, so yeah, that okay, was then. that was one that that sticks around. But there there are lots of others. Um, Aston Martin DB5. Um, I did a big story for classic cars fairly recently on Aston Martin V8 and some of those you know V8 Vantage or a Vantage Zagato, fantastic. Um, mm. Ford or Lagonda that most people have forgotten about. That's a, a long version of the Aston V8, um, one of only I don't know nine made or something. Um, that was a fantastic thing to drive. So there's, there's all sorts of things. Really. Okay, then conversely, what has been your least favourite car to drive? Uh, well, um, this is, is usually an easier answer for people. <laughs> <laughs> the- there are very few really, really grim cars these days, hmm. which is a shame because it, it gives you something to write about if they really are <laughs> lousy. Yeah. Um, How's this car? It's all right, you know, like the other one was all right. And well, yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's where you that's problem. but that's yeah. why you get paid the money, so you've got the skills to. Well, to yeah, do that. yeah, and <laughs> and one of the things that people get wrong um, that they they say just to do a, a thirty second lecture is. Um, people say all oh, road test that's my opinion about the car no it isn't i don't want to know your opinion about the car i want you to tell me what the car is like it's not the same thing at all tell me the characteristics of the car and then i can work out as a reader for myself whether it's a good car or not oh okay so put your opinion to one side furiously scribbling that down yeah 
put your opinions <laughs> to one side. Just tell me what it's like. Anyway, um, and if you want to know more about that, you come and do the full lecture, and, and I'll I'll tell you. Um, my least favourite <laughs> car to drive, and why? There was a particular car um, which should have been nice and wasn't. Um, it, a specific vehicle. Um, and, and apologies to the people at Peugeot because it wasn't their fault, but it was a Peugeot 205 GTI. Okay. Um, I'm guessing it it's was, not a 1.6 then. It was a 1.6, actually. Oh. It wasn't mine. It was a fast car uh, project car, and it was called Project uh, Stealth. Okay. And it was black. It was black <laughs> with black and extra black, you know. Um, so it's called Project Stealth. Or it didn't have black alloys. I don't know why. But anyway, it's called Project Stealth. And... Um, and it had uh, part of the black was it had black um, window tinting, you know, the foil stuff that yeah. you stick on the windows. Um, and you could not see a thing out, outside. <laughs> if it was bright sunshine, you know, you could just about see what was going on around you. Any other time, it was just pitch black out of the side <laughs> windows. Um, and, uh, and I remember having to drive this thing. There was a couple of occasions where I had to drive it. and It, it was horrible. It also had a um a uh a sports exhaust on it um which was a really loud boomy exhaust so it was, it was okay mm. you ran town but when you're driving down the motorway motorway kind of speeds it, it just boomed like crazy yeah so the thing would give you a headache so you'd arrive with a headache um uh, and and i remember i remember driving it to sheffield to do a story about a place that made custom springs for cars and how they did it and it snowed and so i trekked all the way to sheffield from kent where the magazine was uh, in this horrible 205 um with the window wound down all the time so i could see out because i couldn't <laughs> otherwise i couldn't see where I, where i was going and um and picked my way through the snow and parked the thing by the side of the road went off and did my story and did the pictures and really exciting interesting stuff about how they made springs came back into the car um, to drive home, got in the car, closed the, the, the door. Um, and the first thing I did, as I did every time I got in that car, the first thing I did was wind the window down again so I could see out at exactly the same moment as a guy comes past in a uh, snowplow. Oh. Um, and, and I get a, a ton of uh, <laughs> snow and ice and uh, salty water and all sorts of other unmentionable things come in through the window and coat me and the interior of the car and everywhere and, and I, oh, I just drive... think if somebody been videoing that's 250 quid and it's never getting old that was absolutely but it was just you know the comic timing of it was just the window goes down and then it was just absolutely perfect so um so i'm going to blame the car for that um, okay so so that car it but yeah it, it was horrible boomy you couldn't see out of it it didn't like that one at all. So we'll go with that. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> uh, what uh, what car would you like to own next? Uh, well, I'm quite enjoying the M3 at the moment, so I, I'm not really sort of planning anything else, but I do quite fancy the idea of a, a classic convertible. I'm not sure quite what, but any Alpha Spider, something like that. So mm -hmm. I, I, some sort of classic convertible would be nice. So for you with convertibles, is it more cruising along or is it is that is that what you prefer to do or is it the case of doing some having something fast without a roof? Which <laughs> um it would be nice to have something that's a bit of both, although 
going fast can be a bit overrated, I think. Um, you know, says the guy with a 300 horsepower car. <laughs> <Yes>. but, um, <laughs> it, uh, I think what's more important, and, and also, to be fair, one of the reasons why I like the M3, is it's not so much about how fast it is necessarily. It's about how it does what it does. Um, okay. And I think Alpha Spider actually is, is a good example of that. They're not particularly quick. You know, they don't have massively high uh, cornering limits or anything like that. But there's just a sort of a delicacy and a precision about the way that they drive that makes it feel a worthwhile exercise while you're doing it. You know, it kind mm-hmm. of flatters you driving. And so the, the cars that are like that have, have an appeal to me. You know, things like Lotuses as well, like a, a Lotus, um, an old Elan or something, something like that. Uh, again, in modern terms, they're not fast at all, but but they do have there's a, there's a kind of something about the way that they kind of just flow down a a road that that, that is appealing about them. And so it, it, something like that, I think. Okay, okay. Sorry, I snuck another question in there. You see, uh, <laughs> what's your favourite road to drive on? Ah, oh, that's easy. That's the the B four three six four. Now the B four three six four is a little ribbon of tarmac that winds through Shropshire. Okay. And and I like it for two reasons. One is because it heads towards where I live. So it, if I'm on the B four three six four, it probably means I'm on the way home. Mm-hmm. And and also it's just it's a it's a a classic sort of winding road, um, you know, country road with a decent amount of visibility in most of the corners. So it's it's a road where you can you can press on in you know with a, uh, and still be very safe mm-hmm. and and enjoy the way a car drives down a road so uh, yeah b4364 is okay. uh, is the one and i had a i had an interesting experience on that road in the m3 about a year ago i had a brake caliper seize up um so the brake was stuck on all right and and i called out the aa one of the benefits of being Gilded Motoring Writers member, by the way, is you get free AA coverage. <laughs> so I called out the AA, and the AA guy sort of stuck a big lever in the brake caliber and freed it off. And he said, well, there you go. So it's off. But as soon as you hit the brakes again, it's going to seize up again. So, so you know, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I only live 10 miles away. I'll drive it home, and then I'll get it sorted later. Uh, and he said, fine, but you can't hit the brakes. So I ended up having to drive down this this twisty country lane for 10 miles without ever hitting the brakes, which is quite an interesting exercise in, in sort of management and, and forward thinking. So just been shattered at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. You do have to concentrate quite a lot, <laughs> but no, it's an interesting exercise to do. So, mm, okay. Oh, wow. Um, yes. I'm glad I've not had to do that. Okay. So, uh, right then, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Um, I'm not sure about necessarily about optional extra, but the most pointless uh, item in cars these days, and it, and they are there are more and more of them, and I wish there weren't. Steering wheels that aren't round, flat bottom steering wheels. Okay, what's what's your what's your problem with that? Well, if if I'm if I'm driving a car and I'm using a steering wheel and I turn the steering wheel, particularly if I'm doing it in in a hurry because something's gone wrong um, or, you know, somebody's dived out in front of me and I'm having to make a manoeuvre to try and avoid, you know, yeah, this, this idiot, whatever. But if I'm going to be using a steering wheel, 
I want to know that when I grab for where the steering wheel rim is, it's where I think it is, not slightly differently placed because the thing isn't round. Okay, I want a I nice, consistent shape of steering wheel. Right, I understand that, yeah. And a flat-bottom steering wheel doesn't give me that. And it doesn't give you any other benefit. You know, it's, it's purely a, a style thing that's just come out of the fact that some racing cars have them. You know, racing cars can have them because they only have half a turn of lock one way or the other. You never move your hands on the steering wheel. It works perfectly well. Mm. You know, it's why Formula One cars don't have wheel rims at all. They just have a couple of hand grips. You know, you don't need it. In a car where you've got, you know, you're going to have to take your hands off the steering wheel to, to move them at some point, flat bottom steering wheel doesn't make any sense at all. So completely pointless. Either that or the torque gauge on a Nissan GTR. What on earth would you use that for? <laughs> Why you know, are you I looking mean, at it? <laughs> exactly. You're not going to be looking at it in if any that's situation going up, where you should hopefully you not be looking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So completely pointless. Okay, excellent. Okay, those if if this was room one hundred and one, that those two could go in. That's oh, right. absolutely! You, yeah, you've no been problem. convincing. You have been convincing. <laughs> right, uh, penultimate question: uh, Who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Oh, um, a, a motoring person. Um, mm. I would. You know who I would talk to? I would talk to Sir John Egan. John Egan is the Chancellor of Coventry University, and he is a former Chief Executive. Of Jaguar, and has very recently written a book about his time um, leading Jaguar, and he was basically the guy that saved Jaguar as, as a company and took it from government ownership as part of British Leyland into being a private company and and sort of setting it up for where it is now. So I think John Egan would be a really interesting person to talk to. Okay, I will add him to the list. That does sound an interesting person. Um, right, so this leaves me with the last question, which is what are the best ways for people to follow what you do or get in touch? Uh, well, uh, the best ways really, there's uh, two. You can either find me on Twitter, at uh, Andrew Noakes, uh, or you can look at my website, which is andrewnokes.com. Nice and easy. Okay. I will have links to those in the show notes um, so people can just click through on those. And it just leaves me to say thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate uh, your time. Uh, and I, it's been fascinating. I, and um, I, I also appreciate you allowing me to dig deeper into a few of the topics and some of the questions. Like I said to people earlier, I did not pre-warn you on most of those questions. You had a general idea of the flow of the conversation, but not the specifics. So uh, I, I really appreciate um, having the chance to talk to you about all this. No, it's been great fun. Thank you very much. And that's the end of part two. Thanks once again to Andrew for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you all found this as fascinating as I did. If you would like to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearViewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. If you want to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. If you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about the show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great people who come on here. So, until next time, that was Andrew Noakes, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.